In 2017, there was an opinion piece in the New York Times by David Brooks entitled The Strange Persistence of Guilt. It was based on a scholarly article by a historian named Wilfred McClay by the same title. They were looking back to the 1980s, and they were looking at a time when people were predicting that in America, as the religion kind of faded from the public consciousness, as religion declined in America, that guilt would also decline. The idea being, if people aren't tormented with this idea of a God who wants them to live a certain way, they won't feel guilty anymore. And what Brooks and McClay point out is now, about 40 years later, that's actually not what's happened. Uh, Religion has, organized religion, has declined in America. People identify less and less. But guilt has not gone away. Guilt has strangely persisted, as the article says. title of the article suggests. Uh, They they point out now the pronouncements of right and wrong are just as loud as they've ever been, and perhaps even more intense. In fact, uh, Brooks points out that it's often among those who go to church the least, like members of the alt-right, who make the fiercest moral pronouncements. They point out that with the increase and proliferation of technology, we actually increase our sense of guilt because we become more and more aware of all the problems in the world, of all the, the wrongs that are being done, and of how little we're actually doing about them. So to quote McClay, he says, Whatever donation I make to a charitable organization, it can never be as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation, there's an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap. So they're saying, we've kind of gotten rid of the public consciousness of God, we tried to at least, um, but we still believe in a right and wrong. We still believe in justice and injustice. We've tuned up the rhetoric on it to some extent. We believe in all those things. But do we believe in the forgiveness of sins? Today we get to the part of the Apostles' Creed where that's what we confess our belief in. We say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins. We'll talk about what it is, We'll talk about how it comes, and we'll talk about what it brings. So what it is. Um, the forgiveness of sins doesn't actually appear in our passage until verse 7. But in verse 2, early on in the passage, we, we arrive at a closely related concept, the concept of justification. And the passage looks at how was Abraham justified, and then how kind of can anyone be justified, and it closes with another example, how was David justified. These are Bible characters that appear earlier in the Bible. And in verse 3, it says that Abraham um, was counted righteous by God. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In verse 6, it says, um, we read of David speaking of the one that God counts righteous. And then in verses 7 and 8, we read of the one whose sins are forgiven. So by the end of the passage, we see that justification involves two things. To be justified by God means to be counted righteous by God. And also it means to not have your sins counted against you by God. And it's that second part that we're confessing our faith in when we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. So the forgiveness of sins is really one half of the broader biblical doctrine of justification. It's a confession that I have sinned, but that God doesn't count my sins against me. So to understand it, we have to do a little bit of background on what sin is. If we had been going through the book of Romans, you'd have already gotten a heavy dose of this. The first three chapters are really all about this, but I'll just try to summarize briefly. Basically, sin is rebellion against God, and that can come out in a religious or an irreligious way. 
So the irreligious way to rebel against God is kind of an ignorance of God's law, a flaunting of God's law. You kind of know certain things are wrong and you probably shouldn't do them, but you just do them anyway if they feel good, right? That's the irreligious way. The religious way of rebelling against God is you teach the right things. You say, now I know what's right and I know what's wrong, and people should do the right thing and people shouldn't do the wrong thing. You take the right stance on moral issues, but you don't actually do what the law requires, especially what it requires related to mercy, justice, kindness. So in the time period in which Romans was written, the Greeks tended to be more of the irreligious type of rebels, whereas the Jews were more of the religious type of rebels. But both were actually in rebellion against God and guilty of sin. So Romans 3 concludes in uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. My paper's all backwards here. What's going on? All right, hold on. Give me a second here. I'm going to find my second page. Um, yes, okay, here we are. And Man, these are really bad. Um, okay, we'll figure it out by the time we get done here. Um, so Romans 3, yes, okay, back to the scriptures. Um, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, Romans 3, 9 says. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means you and I have also. So that's why, no matter how much you try to eliminate God from your consciousness, guilt strangely persists. Because there really is a God, and we really have sinned against him. All of our denunciations of wrongs, all of our moral proclamations, what they reveal is we know there is a right and wrong that sits in judgment on me and on others. We don't say, you know, I kind of prefer it that people not traffic other humans. I prefer that politicians not lie. We say they shouldn't do that, right? And we, we don't just say they shouldn't. We say they shouldn't be allowed to, right? Something should happen. There should be a penalty for this in some way, shape, or form. So what we're acknowledging is there must be a standard that's bigger than me and the person, bigger than my preferences, bigger than their preferences. Even if they want to do those things, they shouldn't. We'd say the standard is even bigger than whole societies and whole cultures, right? That a whole culture can go wrong. Nazi Germany, that was wrong, right? Even though they all agreed on it, even though the people in power. So what we're acknowledging is there's something bigger than us that determines what's right and wrong that we're all accountable to. Well, that's, the Bible says that's a, a being called God. And in our, all our pronouncements, we acknowledge his existence, but what we all have to own is that we've also fallen short of those very things that we know are right and wrong. We've all been guilty of sin before him, whether it's the religious form, whether it's the irreligious form. Uh, imagine there's a father who has two children, and one of the children is, um, well, he has the two children. He's very kind to them. He provides everything they need. He shelters them. He has fun with them. He's a good dad. He's a perfect dad, if you can imagine such a thing. But when the one child grows up, he spits in the dad's face. He steals from him. He insults him. He runs away from home. He comes back, and he feels entitled to everything, even though he's insulted his father. That's kind of the irreligious way of rebelling against God. The other son, imagine, follows the father's rules, but he secretly hates his brother. And he even hates his father for how kind his father is to that other brother. He doesn't really love the father, doesn't really love the brother. He's rebelling against his father just as much as the other one, but his rebellion doesn't take the same shape outwardly. Religious, irreligious forms of rebellion that we've all been guilty of. Now maybe you say, I'm not really like either of those people, you know? I, I'm not out there flaunting God's law. I'm basically a good person. I just don't do the whole religion thing. I just don't do the whole God thing. But think about what you're saying. That would be like, let's say there's a third child 
And the child grows up in the house and he doesn't break the rules, but he ignores the father. He leaves home and he never calls. Does anyone think that's okay? The fact is, whether you ignore him or not, he's there. We have a creator, and we owe our creator, actually. Love, relationship, we owe it to him to love the people around us, and we haven't done it. So the guilt will strangely persist until that's actually dealt with, unless he actually forgives. Think about this father. What hope do his kids have that he would be kind to them? None of them have the right anymore to look at him and say, you owe me something. You owe me kindness, which is how a lot of us feel towards God, frankly. We think, well, I've been pretty good, so he pretty much owes me to be good to me. If, if, I don't even know if he exists, but if he did, he would have to accept me because I've been good. What this is actually showing us is that our default standing with God is that he owes us nothing. Our only hope that he would be good to us is if he was to forgive is if he was not to treat us the way our sins deserve. And so we come to our passage, and what do we find? There is a way. There is people, according to verses 7 and 8, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. There are those against whom the Lord does not count their sins. Now, in Hebrew poetry, uh, it's important to realize that there's parallelism. That's what's quoted in verses 7 and 8. It's quoted from a book of the Bible that uses poetry. And so when it says the lawless deeds are forgiven, the things it says after that are meant to help us understand what it means to have your lawless deeds forgiven. So if we keep reading, it says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, verse 7, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. So what does it mean to have your sins forgiven? It means that your sins are covered. It means that when God looks at you, he doesn't look on your sins. It means that when God accounts to you whether you're righteous or not, he takes the sins out of your account and does not count them against you. So forgiveness is not God saying, it's okay, what you did was okay. It's not okay to sin. God is saying, it's not okay, but I'm not going to count it against you. It's not God saying, I know you failed to love me, but it's really hard to love me. And you know, we all make mistakes, so you can too. It's not a lowering of the bar. It's not God saying it doesn't matter. He still calls it sin, right? But he doesn't count it against you. He doesn't treat you as you deserve. In in forgiveness, when God forgives your sins, he's treating you as though you never sinned, even though he knows you did. He's not counting them to you. He's covering them. But it's better than that, actually. Because remember, justification is bigger than just the forgiveness of sins, the other half of justification. He doesn't count your sins against you, but he also counts righteousness to you. So not only does God treat you as though you never sinned, God treats you as though you always obeyed. He doesn't just say, hey, I know you failed to love me, but all right, fine, I won't hold it against you. Go about your merry way. He says, come back, come home, come live with me again. Forgiveness says you can go. Justification says you can come. It is God's full and total acceptance of you. It is God's declaration, I am for you, I am with you. You are righteous in my sight, though you have sinned against me. We know there's a right and wrong that judges even us, and if we're honest, we violated it. 
until you're forgiven by the one whom it's ultimately against, guilt will strangely persist. But God is a God who forgives sin and who counts righteousness to those who are not righteous in and of themselves. How does he do it? Let's talk about that, how it comes. This is really the question that our passage is primarily concerned with, and it suggests two possibilities. It says you could be justified by works or you could be justified by faith. And it looks at Abraham and asks, now which way was he justified? Works are an important thing in the Bible. Works are commanded in the Bible. Feeding the poor, clothing the naked, proclaiming God's excellencies, honoring your parents. A lot of commandments all throughout the Bible. They're important. God never says they don't matter. God wouldn't say that. He's too good to say that. But do they justify? That's the question we're asking here. Looking at the example of Abraham, verse 2 says, If Abraham was justified by those things, by doing good works that God commands, good things, then he would have something to boast about. If you were to ask Abraham, why does God love and accept you? Why are you righteous in his sight? Abraham would be able to point at himself. He'd say, I've done good works. Yet that's not what happened. Verse 3 says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham hadn't done anything. He believed. That's not a work. And God counted it to him as righteousness. In that moment, with no good works, Abraham was counted righteous. And the reason is given in verse 4. It says, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So this morning, we had Richard and Gabby up front. I gave them a gift. They didn't turn around and say to me, well, it's about time. Because they know it's a gift, right? They didn't do anything to earn that gift, right? But if God grants you righteousness because of good works you did, then you say, it's about time. I I deserve this. When you work your job, right? Many of you have jobs. You get paid biweekly. You get your paycheck. How many of you say, wow, my boss is so kind. I can't believe they gave me money. You don't say that, right? You say, okay, that's what I deserve, you know? And more to the point of this passage, if I were to ask you, why did you get that paycheck and the person who doesn't work for your company didn't get it, what would you say? You'd say, I worked for it. They didn't. And you'd be right. That's exactly not how God counts righteousness. That's exactly not how God forgives sins. Because he doesn't want to leave you in a position where you can say, I'm righteous and they're not. And you know why? I did it and they didn't. I'm better than they are. I can boast over them. God says, I'm not going to grant you righteousness that way. Do you see how different that is from religion? Think about that. One of the things um, David Brooks and Wilfred McClay, these guys I quoted earlier in the strange persistence of guilt stuff, they say the problem we have today is that we're not as religious as a society. And so we still feel guilty because you can't get away from God. You're going to feel guilty. But we don't have the ways of dealing with it that people used to have. Because what religion gives people is it gives you something to do to deal with your guilt. So you've got the persistence of guilt. Pray these prayers, do this penance, whatever it may be. Here you go. And they say, we don't have that as much anymore. We're spiritual but not religious now. So we still feel guilty, but we don't have a way of dealing with the guilt. So how do people do it today if you're irreligious? Well, the way they point out is one is to claim victim status. So McClay says, if one wishes to be accounted innocent, one must find a way to make the claim that one is, cannot be held morally responsible. This is precisely what the status of victimhood accomplishes. So he's saying, you know, if you feel guilty... You have to find a way to say, I'm not accountable. 
And the way you do that is you say, I've been a victim. I can't be held accountable for what I do. Okay. The other way, um, the other approach without God is that of pop psychology. And the message there is forgive yourself. Because the idea is if God doesn't exist and you feel guilty, where does that come from? Well, it must come from you. And so who has to forgive you? You have to forgive you. You have to forgive yourself. Neither of these approaches ultimately work. Because here's the reality. Um, You can be a victim before other people, and no doubt, many of you are. I don't want to minimize that in any way. But nobody is ultimately a victim before God. Nobody can look at God and say to God, but you didn't give me what you were supposed to. God actually is the one who looks at us and says, but you didn't give me what you were supposed to. So none of us can claim we're not responsible before God. And forgiving yourself can feel good for a moment, it won't ultimately get rid of the strange persistence of guilt because you haven't ultimately sinned against yourself. You've ultimately sinned against God. And the guilt can only be dealt with if the one you've sinned against actually forgives you, if he actually chooses to cover it, if he chooses to account it to you no longer. So guilt strangely persists, but the irreligious ways of dealing with it won't actually work. The flip side, though, is that the religious ways don't work either. Because God specifically says, I'm not going to grant you forgiveness based on something you do. You can't do enough penance. You can't do enough worse. Because then you would be able to boast in it. And I'm not going to let you do that. Can't come from religion. Can't come from irreligion. How does it come? Verse 5. It comes to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. So it doesn't say... It comes to the one who works, but you've got to believe too. It says it comes to the one who does not work. So how many good works do you have to do for God to forgive you all your bad works? Zero. If you come to God and you say, God, I, you know, I know I've done some wrong things, but I've also done some good things and I've tried my best, and I know it's not much, but I'm just asking you to forgive me. God won't look at you and say, no, you haven't done enough good works. He'll actually look at you and say, no, you've got too many good works. You're trying to come to me on the basis of your goodness. You're boasting in the good things that you've done. And that's not a person that I'm going to grant righteousness to. He justifies, verse 5 says, the ungodly. If you come to him and you say, I'm godly, justify me. No, I justify the ungodly. I justify those who know that in my presence they have no good works to offer me. They have nothing that can put me in their debt. They have nothing that makes them better than the person next to them. All you need to be forgiven is need. All you need is nothing. If you think you have something to make God forgive you, you actually have too much that you're crediting to your account. The irreligious person won't believe in the God who justifies the ungodly because they don't believe in God. The religious person won't believe in the God who justifies the ungodly because they're too busy trying to convince themselves they're godly. But the Christian says, I am ungodly, but I believe in the God who justifies the ungodly. And his faith is credited to him as righteousness. It is to believe that righteousness has to be a gift from God because I know I've got none of my own. I would have to receive it from him. Justification comes by faith alone. It comes to the one who does not work. How does it come? Believe and do nothing. Believe and do nothing. 
and justification is given. Righteousness is counted to you as a gift. Now, how can God do that? <laughs> how can God count people righteous who aren't? How can he justify the ungodly? He's not pretending they're not ungodly. He calls us ungodly. And then he justifies the ungodly because they have faith. Well, well, what good is that? I mean, faith is not a work, right? I mean, Abraham's not doing anything when he believes God. What's he doing? He's just, he's just believing the promise that God makes, that God would send an offspring of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Abraham believes the promise and he's justified. Really? Even though he did nothing good? Our sins are forgiven just because we believe a promise? Well, what are we doing? We're believing that that, Ab- that promise that was made to Abraham has been fulfilled. We're believing that the offspring of Abraham has come in Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ, in his life, did every good work that was required for our salvation. That Jesus Christ accomplished a perfect righteousness that is so perfect that I couldn't add a single good work to it. And yet, on the cross, his righteousness was not counted to him. Instead, my sins were counted to him. So that when he rose from the dead, his righteousness could be counted to me. That's what you trust when you have faith in Jesus Christ. That's why your sins can be covered because they've actually been laid on someone else. That's why your sins cannot be counted to you because they've actually been counted to another. And that's why righteousness can be counted to you because it's been accomplished by another. And through union with him, through faith in the resurrected, ascended, seated at the right hand Christ, your sins have been accounted to him, his righteousness has been counted to you, and you are justified, though you in and of yourself are ungodly, though you in and of yourself have no good works to claim God's grace as your own. It comes to the one who does not work because Christ is the one who did. Righteousness comes through faith, not because of what faith is, but because of who faith lays hold of, because it lays hold of Jesus Christ, who has accomplished the perfect righteousness and who your sins have been accounted to. If you've never confessed your ungodliness and believed in him who justifies the ungodly, your sins have not been forgiven and your guilt will strangely persist. But if you believe in the God who justifies the ungodly, if you receive and rest upon Jesus Christ, through faith alone, then the moment you do, with no good works, while you're ungodly, God will count you righteous. And your sins will no longer be counted to you. All of your sins will be forgiven, past, present, and future. And God will look at you, not only as though you never sinned, but as though you always obeyed. And if you have trusted Jesus Christ, if you have believed then no matter how ungodly you still are today, God looks at you as though you never sinned and as though you always obeyed. And you are as righteous in his sight today as the most righteous Christian you know. You are as righteous in his sight today as you will be in heaven when all of your sins have been obliterated. Because the only righteousness by which you are righteous is the righteousness of Jesus Christ which has been given to you through faith, counted to you 
through faith, even as your sins have been counted to him. You know, religious conservatives say, uh, I go to church, I'm faithfully married to a spouse of the opposite sex, I raise my kids with family values, I vote Republican, and then they look down their nose at all the immoral and unrighteous people on the left. And religious liberals say, I go to church, I march in the rally, I'm welcoming and I'm affirming of every kind of person, I vote Democrat. And then they look down their nose at all the intolerant and bigoted people on the right. But the Christian says, I'm ungodly. (laughs) But God justifies, it's okay, it's my son. Um, (laughs) I'm ungodly, but God justifies the ungodly. And if you're a Christian, you you lose all power to look down your nose at anyone. Because your confession of faith is, I'm ungodly. And the only reason I'm accounted righteous in the sight of God is because he is merciful, because he justifies the ungodly. So who do you look down on? If you want to evaluate that, who are the people that you tend to exclude from your community? They're the people that you probably look down on. They're the people you probably boast over. And none of us admit to that, right? We all say, no, I don't, I don't think I'm better than anyone else, you know? But who are the people that you don't let in? For me, it's usually the people I define as uncool. They're not cool enough to, you know, I can be nice to them, but they, you know. Where do you get off? Where do I get off? God hasn't accepted me because I'm cool. He doesn't count righteousness to me because of that. He's counted me righteous because of who he is, because of who Christ is. I'm ungodly. I've got nothing. I got no good works to offer him. How dare I then, if he's so lovingly and graciously accepted me, put conditions on my acceptance of others? You see, you lose all power to do that. Uh, J.D. Vance, the guy that wrote the bestseller Hillbilly Elegy a few years ago, he said in one of his interviews, um, we all seem to have this need to look down on somebody. And he was saying, you know, the people he was writing about, everybody wants to look down on them because we all feel this need to look. Why? Because we know we're guilty. And one of the best ways of dealing with that is to tell ourselves how bad everybody else is so that we can bolster our own sense of righteousness, so that we can cover up our own sense of guilt. But if you're a Christian, you lose all power to do that. There's no more room to do it because you know you're ungodly. You can't look at someone else and say, but I, but I did things that they didn't. No, God justified you when you had no good works. You lose all power to do it, but you also lose the need to do it. Because when you receive this justification, when you're forgiven, it brings something into your life. And let's conclude by talking about that. What does it bring? In a word, verses 6 through 8 show us that it brings blessing into your life. Now, blessing in the Psalms, which is where this passage is quoted from, is a kind of full-throated, substantial joy and peace. I'm, I'm blessed. You know, it's, it's the real deal. Um, and blessing comes, verse 6 says, to the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. Verse 7 says, it's the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Verse 8, the one whom the Lord will not count his sin. It's saying, what, what joy, what comfort would you have if you could actually admit all the ugly, sinful, wicked stuff that you've done that goes through your mind that you still are prone to do today that you still do today, if you could actually admit all that and know at the same time that you are loved and justified and righteous in the sight of God. What joy would that bring into your life? What, what comfort would you have if you knew deep down that God not only viewed you as though you had never sinned, but as though you had always obeyed. If the righteousness of Christ was yours. Now that is what is offered to you in the forgiveness of sins. 
Joy unspeakable. Even, your, even if you mess up again, even when you mess up again, it can't take it from you, right? Because it was never based on you. It's based on Christ. Now, if you have that, that joy of knowing that you're loved by the one supremely valuable, admirable being in the universe, loved and accepted by him, do you see why you wouldn't need to put down everyone else to bolster yourself? What that joy brings is it brings a freedom, actually, to be more aware of your own sins than you are of others. Because now, an awareness of your own sins doesn't have to crush you. You know God justifies the ungodly. It's okay if I'm one of them. You don't have to convince yourself you're not by pointing out how ungodly all the other people are. You can call out sin when justice requires that, but you can do it without the kind of self-righteous pomp that marks basically all of our discourse today about how every, that side is demonic and I'm one of the good people. You can come into that knowing I'm ungodly, but I've been forgiven. And then what it actually frees you to do is rather than having to point out and manufacture flaws for the bad guys so you can be one of the good guys, you can actually see the good things God's doing in them. You can see the graces in their life and start to point out the good things in them. Even though it kind of builds them up, it makes them look better than you, you don't have to look good anymore. You know at your worst, God loves you. He justifies you and he forgives you. You don't have to secure yourself anymore by feeling better than the other it should really enable you to forget yourself entirely. <laughs> you're already righteous in God's sight. What do you, I mean, you're free now to just love him and love others. Do you have that? Do you know this incredible blessing that David writes of? Do you experience that joy? Many Christians in their day-to-day experience don't. Part of the reason for that is that there, some people are, are calling themselves Christians and they're not. You've, you've maybe... Growing up in church, you've lived a religious life. Um, but, but if that's what you're basing, you're standing with God on. You say, well, I know God must be kind of okay with me because I've been pretty good. That's not going to bring much joy into your life. If your confession of faith is, I've been pretty good and God's been you know, pretty good to me, where's the joy in that? Blessed is the one who's been basically nice and God's nice to them. I mean, it just doesn't do that, right? It doesn't electrify But blessed is the one who was guilty, who was a sinner, and God didn't count their sins against them, and God actually counted righteousness to them. That has the power to bring joy into your life. Nonetheless, there are plenty of you who are genuine Christians who have believed and who still don't experience this joy. And part of the reason may be that you've stopped confessing your sins, so the joy of having your sins forgiven is kind of like a distant memory from the past. But we're going to talk about that next week. This is so important. We're spending two weeks on it. We're going to talk about ongoing confession next week and the joy that that can bring. So we'll get to that then. The other reason may be that if you're a Christian and you're not experiencing this joy, it may be because you've slid back into religion. So you've believed that God justified you entirely apart from what you do, entirely on the basis of Christ. But you've started on the day-to-day to base your sense of God's love and acceptance of you on how you're doing in the way of obedience, on whether you're obeying God's commands well today, and on how much you're doing for him, how much are you getting done for his kingdom, what impact are you making on your world. You started to base your love and acceptance from God on that. And the problem with that is, the longer you're a Christian, the more aware you'll become of how far short you fall. (laughs) Like, I've been thinking about Jesus' command, love your neighbor as yourself. You know what that means? It means you love another person with the same intentionality, energy, and resources that you devote to bettering yourself. And you don't just do it 
with your wife and kid. You know, I'd already be failing if that was all it said. You do it with your enemy. Man, I fall short of that. Love the Lord your God with what? All, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Try to understand that and think about how often I use God to get the things I really love, how conditional I make my obedience to him and my joy in him based on the circumstances he gives me. Man, I fall short of that. Now, if you're basing your righteousness on that before God, yeah, you're not going to feel this blessing and this joy of being forgiven. As you grow as a Christian, you have to be able to see your sins. You have to be able to see the way you fall short. You can't pretend it's not there. But as you see those things, don't stop seeing the mercy of Jesus. As you believe you're a sinner, please do. But don't stop believing in the forgiveness of sins. Don't start thinking that God now counts you righteous based on how godly you are. God never does that. He's the God who justifies the ungodly. And that will always be true of you to some degree. You've got to be able to see your sin. And at the same time, say to your heart, before you fix it, my sin is covered by the righteousness of Christ. My sin has been counted against Christ. The Lord will not count it against me. His righteousness has been counted to me. God is the one who does not work that you justify. And this blessing will extend then even into your future. If you believe in him who justifies the ungodly, you don't have to fear the judgment. We talked a few weeks ago in the Apostles' Creed about the part that says that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. And we saw that he will judge us according to our works. Because kind of the way this works is you're justified apart from any works you do. You're always righteous before God apart from your works. And yet when that happens in your life, good works will necessarily result. Okay? But... Those good works will never be the basis on which you are righteous. It will always be the good works that Jesus Christ did on your behalf that have been counted to you even as your sins have been counted to him. Which means you can look ahead to your future with hope and with joy and with boldness because the God of the universe has forgiven you, counts you righteous, will never hold your sins against you, will never condemn you for your sins. You don't have to fear what people can do to you. You don't have to fear what suffering can do to you. There can be horrible things that come into your life that the Lord allows to come into your life and they can hurt you, they can grind you, they can kill you, they can't condemn you. They can never condemn you in God's sight. They can never rob you of his favor and of the inheritance that you have in him. You can go out into your world with this kind of boldness and and, and peace and joy but without the arrogance that so often goes with that. Some people are bold because they just think they're better than everyone else. What this does, though, this blessing that we're talking about, what it brings, it brings a joy because God is for you and he is with you and he is going to work all things together for your good and you can never lose that. But it's not because of, who you, it's not because of what you've done. So you go out with this humility in yourself. You know, in and of myself, I'm ungodly, I'm lost, I deserve nothing. And yet in him, I have everything. All by grace, all because of who he is. Confident, joyful in Christ. Humble with respect to yourself. Though religion has declined in America, though organized religion has declined in Philadelphia, guilt has not. Guilt strangely persists, 
irreligion can't deal with it. The irreligious won't believe in the God who justifies the ungodly because they don't believe in God. The religion can't deal with it. They won't believe in the God who justifies the ungodly because they're busy trying to convince themselves they're godly. Believe, though, in the God who justifies the ungodly. Receive the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ counted to you when you do not work. Receive it, enjoy that blessing, and go out into your world with boldness and humility. Let's pray. Father, you are a God who justifies the ungodly. We confess that that's us, um, that all we have sinned and fallen short of your glory. It's a, it's a painful thing to admit, Lord. It's a scary thing to admit. And yet we can admit it to a God who forgives, to a God who justifies the ungodly, to a God who has counted our sins to his son, Jesus Christ, and who has counted his righteousness to us. God, I pray today that we would know this blessing that David speaks of, that we would be able to say with him in our hearts, what a joy, what a, what a, what a joy, Lord, that, that people like us would be counted righteous in your sight. It's, it's amazing, it's laughable, and it's true. We receive it today, Lord. We ask that it would bear the fruit of joy in our lives, and we ask that you would kill in us everything that wants to boast in something in us that makes us better than others. Bring us low with respect to ourselves. Eliminate in us any power to boast, but eliminate in us any need to boast either. May we be so joyful in you that we part with it in Christ's name. Amen.